stole that piece of audio. Um, I made the Stony Island audio audio tag from a a television commercial. Audio from a television commercial about a a popular uh, fun place for kids on the south side of Chicago when I grew up. So, uh, for anyone wondering, that's the the backstory to the Stony Island audio intro. This is what it happened was I'm open mic eagle and I am telling you facts you didn't ask for. Welcome to season three, episode six. This episode is centered around leaders of the new school. As Charlie Brown, Milo in a dance, Denko, and of course, Buster Rhymes. Dante signed this group after seeing them perform um, in a way that he thought uh, was incredible. It blew him away. He went to try to find them, and um, they were broken up already. <laughs> like, like a week after he saw them, they was broke up already. And that's kind of um, it. Kind of sets the stage for his adventures with leaders of the new school throughout uh, the creation of their first and second albums, going into Buster Rhymes's solo career all that's coming up in a second please rate and review it helps the robots love us also go check out the clips of the show and full episodes available on youtube stony island audio uh look for us there what had happened was and the raw report from dice raw check out all the stony island audio shows fatherhoods with dj efn and manny digital and kgb and the questions hip hop trivia show with Sean Cantrowitz, Dad Bod, Rap Pod, Super Duty Tough Work, and Creativity in Captivity. We got a bunch of shows. Tap in, learn about stuff, hear about raps, new raps, old raps, people that don't rap at all. But this is what it happened was Season 3, Episode 6 with Dante Ross covering the leaders of the new school. We're about to enter a wild ride in this part of Dante's career. We just finished with Brand New Beam. Got Leaders of the New School coming up soon. We got KMD, P-Rock and C.O. Smooth, Delta Funky Homo Sapien, Old Dirty Bastard. It gets crazy, y'all. And this all starts right here. Let's get into it. Welcome, man. This is Open Mike Eagle. This is season three of What It Happened Was, y'all. We got another very special guest with us. He needs no introduction, but... If you ever read the line of notes on classics from all kind of folks, you know who knew where to find the dope. It's Dante serving stories like entrees. I guess for season three, it's a giant like Andre. Mr. No Shit Taker, the third base hit maker. Eganar innovator, the ODB motivator. He signed a roster full of heavy hitters. Office messenger, the Grammy winner. Motherfucker Dante Ross. In the 90s, you would call him the plug. Signing act after dope act. He saw the clubs as Pete, CL leaders, Dale, and all the above. If you don't know him, don't call him a scrub. It's what it happened was. What up, what up, everybody? What up, what up, everybody? This is Open Mike Eagle, and we are joined once again. We have the privilege of speaking with Triple OG himself, Mr. Dante Ross. How you doing today? I'm good, man. Drinking my iced coffee. Uh, it's a nice, nice on a Friday afternoon, man, you know? Uh, we're here today, I mean, you know, in covering your, your chronicles, right? Yeah. We are firmly entrenched in your uh, stay at Electra. Yeah. And we've covered Brand Nubian. Yeah. And um, now we're about to get into the story of the leaders of the new school. Ooh, that's a story, yeah. all right. It's a saga. I know it. It's, it seems like it. I, you know, doing a lot of research coming into this, man, it seems like the fireworks came early and often. Whoa, it was never easy with those guys, man. Um, but, you know, it was, it was great, though. I can't say it wasn't great. Like, it was mm -hmm. a learning experience, you know. And, and um, we made one really good record and one very weird record. But, you know, it was... It was um, <laughs> Hey, look, man, no leaders of new school, um, no Buster Rhymes. And, and they're, right. they're the one group that I'm always like, shoulda, coulda, woulda. You know, mm. they should have been much bigger. And, and at times they were their own worst enemies. 
Where did you first see them or encounter them? So I knew about them prior to ever seeing them or hearing their music because I heard Hank and Chuck talk about them, Hank Shockley and Chuck D. Okay. And they were under the Bomb Squad's wing. So I see. the Bomb Squad assembled, they did literally tryouts like a boy band, and they assembled the group. They all were from oh, Long so, Island. Oh, so they, they assembled them from yeah. individuals. They yeah. put the group together. Yeah, they, and they gave okay. them their names. Right. Right, so... They they gave Buster Rhymes his name, Charlie Brown. And Charlie Brown. Name. I don't know if they gave Cup Minor or Milo his name. They probably did. but And Milo's related to Buster somehow. They're all living in Long Island, though Buster is from Brooklyn, and, and Milo is too, I believe. You know, we're from like Roosevelt, they went, or Uniondale, Roosevelt area, and they went to, to school out there, Hempstead. They're from that part of Long Island, which is where P.E. is from. And P.E. had their studio, five, 510, I think it was called, and... And um, they apparently had names of groups on a board and Leaders of New School mm. was one of them, and they put the group together. Wow. So, okay, how close was Public Enemy to fashioning what the image of the group was since they literally put them together? I, I think a lot. I okay. think they had a lot to do with it. Um, I think they gave them a name. The high school thing, they emphasized that was their thing. I think that they were leaders in the New School I think a lot of that came from from Hank and Chuck, um, and right. and if I, without knowing for sure, I know Chuck gave Buster Rhymes his name, but I want to say that Hank, knowing the way Hank thinks, he probably was a strategist in a lot of this. But but Chuck as well, because Chuck is a great propagandist. I don't know if you, and I mean that in the best sense of words. So I know what you, you mean. know the yeah. blueprint was definitely written by those guys. And then did Public Enemy go on to be involved with them and their business going forward too? Not really. So it's a long story, um, and, and it's shrouded in mystery. So, so what I know and what really is maybe two different things, because I kind of got the story from Charlie Brown, and, and I guess Buster has, has told me the story of the years, as has Chuck a bit. And, and I don't know if you know, but Chuck, is my, he's one of my OGs. I knew Chuck before when I was a, a rookie in the game. Right, when he was a rush. He, yeah. he um, always was the, the big homie. Um, so... I, I knew about them. I saw them perform. I saw them perform at a club called Payday. It was either Payday or Milky Way. I get them confused. And it was at this, this place called uh, the Ukrainian Hall. And it's where we had done De La Soul's gold record. I saw the Cramps there, the Bad Brains. It was a punk rock venue way back in the day. It was in my neighborhood I grew up in. And I saw them performing um, with one microphone. And Buster Rhymes was holding the mic and directing traffic. And their ad-libs were just like on the record. So very Cold Crush Brothers E, and it was fantastic. And they, they performed in the audience, not on the stage, and, and they were just rocking over a breakbeat. I want to say it was impeached, but I could be wrong. But they had songs and routines. And like I say, it was fantastic. Rarely have I ever seen a, a live rap group not knowing their music. I think this is the only time that made me say I want to sign them. So I've seen a couple of groups I didn't really know about kill it live before, but this is like a very notable like experience. It was akin to going to see like a rock band I'd never heard of before destroy shit. So PE puts them together. You see them absolutely destroying a show. Oh, so great. What was your first inclination that there might be problems? So I didn't know there was any problems then. I went up to them and somehow Charlie Brown knew who I was. He knew exactly who I was, uh, which, is, which is wild. And I was like, yo, man, I think you guys are great. I want you to come to office. I want to fuck with you. Like, I want to hear your demo, blah, blah, blah. So they were like, cool. And Charlie Brown didn't hit me for about a week or two, which was a little weird, but he finally hit me and he came and saw me and he played me um, Too Much On My Mind. Too much on my mind, just too much on my mind. Too much on my mind, just too much on my mind. Which they had demoed. I think I was, they had that in another song I can't remember that never came out. And, um, oh, they had a primitive version, I, I think, a sob story. I could be wrong. I know you and you know me. I know you and you know me. I know you and you know me. It's 
Like they came and saw me, or he came, and he had like a manila envelope, like a book report. And the book report was <laughs> Leaders of the New School with some okay. drawings and all this shit and like kind of like mapped out the first record. Wow. I want to say he made it, but for all I know, Chuck and him could have made it. <laughs> it was fucking cool, though. And I was like, they have a concept. They have cool demos. They're great live. The Buster Kid is a fucking superstar. And, and, I, and I asked Charlie, how come Buster's not here? And he was like, mm-hmm. oh, he couldn't make it, blah, 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 blah. What I didn't know is that after that show, they had had a big fight and broken up. So they were broke up before y'all even had the meeting. They were broken up. And they got back together because Charlie, being the master manipulator, went back to Long Island. I was like, yo, Dante Ross wants to sign us. And I did tell him. I said, I want to sign you, but I got I to gotta have all of you in the room. But I was like, I want to give you guys a record deal. So they reassembled. They worked out their internal squabbles to some extent. They came <laughs> in. I told them I wanted to sign them. Buster was 17. I had to get parental permission. They had a lawyer. He was the youngest? He was the youngest. They had a lawyer named Jill Pilgrim, who was impossible. I called her Ill Pilgrim. Um, <laughs> she was just impossible, and she made the deal very difficult to get done, and their internal squabbles didn't help, and Charlie mm-hmm. Brown, being ridiculously difficult, did not help either. It was one of the harder deals to get done that I'd ever done. I got the deal done, and they skated on on the bomb squad there they had their deal with the bomb squad had expired and charlie unbeknownst to me basically picked the bomb squad's pocket and was like fuck you guys i'm going for i'm going for delph and and to his credit the bomb squad and them had kind of fallen out over a few things the young black teenagers were going to be called leaders of the new school. Wow. Charlie Brown, to his credit, copywrote that fucking name. Wow. He okay. Trademarked so he was really the name. on top of it. And, and they had to come up with a name for the young black teenagers. And, and that's what their name was. And there was animosity between those guys and leaders. But Cam, in the young black teenagers, dated Charlie's sister. Wow. So this was all just... This was a big twist. <laughs> and Young Black Keeners, much like um, Leaders of the New School, were a boy band. They were assembled. They weren't a crew. Okay. So not, Now, and they, and, and, they, and they weren't black, right? Oh, hell weren't no. They like they, not they're black? white, and, and yeah. I can't believe that Hank got away with that shit. That shit would not fly nowadays. Yeah, that was weird. I remember being weird. a kid I being didn't, like, I didn't really like strange. it. I felt, I felt uncomfortable about it, and they had the fake Beatles cover, and it was very contrived. Uh, it was like, we're going to cause controversy. Yeah, and it didn't really. And, they, and the music wasn't that good. <laughs> right. The music was like fake leaders of the new school kind of. It was. Tap the ball and twist the cap and all of that. So that said, um, we probably gave them way too much airtime. Um, <laughs> um, leaders reformed as a group. The first time they came in my office... They had a big argument, Charlie and, and Buster. The first time. Yeah, that, so when, so when, they, the when they came back together as the four yeah. of them, sitting in your office, they have an argument right there. right there in front of you. Wow. They're speaking over each other, and I could see they're competitive. I see it. Do you remember what the argument was over that first time? Know. Someone stole someone's Skittles. I don't fucking know. <laughs> your pencil's wrong. I think, you know, I don't like your shoelaces. Those guys can argue over anything. Um, and, and, and I've been known to argue too. So, so I was like, oh, these guys, you know, uh, it was, it was steeped in tension from day one, but I've also come to know that tension can sometimes make great music. Third bass didn't always get along. Neither did, did, um, Daylight always got along. Um, though, though they were steeped in sarcasm as was KMD, but brand new means didn't always get Mm -hmm. along. And, um, I, I knew that tension, you know, being a student of rock and roll too, tension can lead to great music. What was your first impression of uh, Milo and Dinko? So Milo was a little older, and I felt, and I believe I was correct with my initial assumption, that he was a little more rugged, a little more street, a little, you know, mm-hmm. he's Jamaican too, and, and he, was, right. he was definitely, um, he had, if, you know, I, I, 
I grew up around a lot of Jamaicans when I moved to Brooklyn. And so, you know, he had a, a certain vibe that I was familiar with. And, and um, Jamaicans, you know, they're, they're, um, they're not soft people. He wasn't a soft individual. So, and, and I feel like he was kind of, I don't say the bully, but like he was, he was um, intimidating to the rest of the band at times, except for Buster. And Buster and were cousins. Um, and Dinko was, um, and still is, very, very nice guy, affable, stoned out, groovy cat, <laughs> not too, a little passive, and, and not necessarily prone to all the theatrics the rest were, uh, you know, kind of prone to. And so everybody knows that, you know, a lot of the tension was between Buster and Charlie. Yeah. Did Dinko and Milo pick sides in that a lot? I think later on, they may have. I, I want to say that Milo probably, if anything, rode with Bus most of the time. And I can remember him clearly calling Charlie Brown an asshole more than once. Mm-hmm. And, and Dinko tried to ride the fence. He's a peacemaker. And he'd be like, you know, he was the kind of guy like, yo, y'all are bugging. Like, we, you know, what's up? You know, but he also was in a super, um, he's a relatively passive guy. So, you know, he was kind of brushed off. But, but he always wanted things to be cool. He always wants good vibes. He was, he's that kind of person. He's non-confrontational like that. Was it typical around that time for people to look at groups as a launch pad? No. Like, like groups were going to be temporary. No, I don't think so. I think this was probably when that started. But, you know, if you, you know, look, rap music's just like rock and roll or punk rock, soul music. You know, the guy, the guy up front always, always might go solo, right? Eddie Kendricks and David Ruffin, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. There's always the possibility that Teddy Pendergrass is going to jump out of Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes on you. Right. I think that pretty early on, Charlie Brown was thinking about a solo thing, to be honest, probably more than Buster, and was vying for the lead singer job. You know what I mean? And rap, I always say rap is like, oh, shit, rap group? Well, that's three lead singers, right, if there's three rappers. So, you know, every, every MC is a lead singer. Right. And it's rough when you got a lot of lead singers in a band. So what gave you the confidence that they were going to be able to pull off this album with, all, with the tension that you're seeing off? I mean, I, had, I, I wasn't, you know, early on I wasn't scared at all. I probably should have been, but I wasn't. <laughs> um, call it, call it uh, me being naive or, or hopeful, but there's no doubt that they had the talent. They had the goods. Um, they were very good rappers. Buster and Charlie were exceptional. Dinko was, wasn't a, you know, he wasn't chopped meat. He was nice too. Um, and they had a concept and a perspective. It veered a little towards gimmicky because how do you go from high school to, to growing up, right? But, but they had the answer. We're going to go to right. college and we're going to become grownups. So I like that, the graduating theory. Um, and, and I thought, um, as a unit, they were very good. I felt that they never were quite as good on records as they could have been or live. And a lot of that was being young, having a lot of dysfunction in the group, and, and um, the tension between Brown and, and Buster. It was always there. And, you know, look at the first record. They all have solo songs. And, and that right. was because, you know, one day they were all thinking of going solo. But, but I got to say... The irony is I always felt Brown pushed the solo aspect more than Buster, and look what happened. And also, I had read that part of the thing with Buster having the two solo songs, uh, Feminine Fat, Show Me a Hero, I I read that part of that happened because in that time after that show and before you signed them when they were broke up, they started recording separately, and Buster had came back with the Feminine Fat song already done. That very well could be true. I never heard those demos, though. So that wasn't okay. part of them getting signed. But, you know, Backspin and Bus had their own little thing that they did. And they're both from Brooklyn. And I think I see. Backspin was working with Buster way bef- before Leaders. Okay. Okay. Were you more hands-on with them? I was very hands-on with them. And another ironic thing is that me and Brown were very, we were close in the beginning. And, and you know, sometimes it was love-hate mm-hmm. with me and Brown. He was, he was unaware of himself, very talented, very ego-driven, very insecure, um, very, very smart, almost too smart. Um, mm-hmm. And he let his ego 
run a lot of his decision making. He he was super brilliant and super complicated. So me and him were tight initially, and you know I did the deal because he was the conduit. But but I did believe that Buster was probably a, the most talented in the group. I had never heard anyone like Buster before. I don't think anyone had. He was, you know, he he had the goods and then some. He also looked like a million bucks when he was younger. He still looks cool, but but, mm-hmm. but that's mm-hmm. after like hitting the gym for like nine years, um, you know. But but Buster, was, <laughs> um, you know, he's very charismatic, man. Like you know, and and yeah. um, a powerful, powerful presence. And as I got to know the leaders, me and Brown, and I think this probably happened with Brown and a lot of people. We started to really have a lot of animosity towards each other. Um, Brown is the kind of dude you come in with with some food and he'd be like, let me get that. You know what I mean? He was like that dude. <laughs> okay. So to go back to leaders, it was apparent that Buster was, you know, as they started to become popular, it was apparent that Buster was the, the person that people gravitated to more. And, and that caused a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, internal turmoil amongst them. And, you know, Chris Lighty and Lior were their manners, but it was Chris Lighty. And Chris and me were knee-deep in this shit mm-hmm. with them for a long time. You know, it was ironic because by the time that record came out, the first record, they'd already been adopted by the native tongues. Right. Um, so I, I, I can't tell you offhand if they're officially a member of the native tongues, but I believe they might have been the last members of the native tongues. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very closely associated, and Q-Tip was a huge fan, as was uh, De La, and, and they were in the mix with those guys. They were, they toured with them. And, and so, you know, it was always, um, there was great potential and I saw the great potential early on. Um, and I can't tell you that we nailed that first record. I remember doing, I did a song with them for an Electra Records compilation called Rubia. It was like 30 years of Electra Records. And, and we had to use an Electra Records sample. So I used Mount Airy Groove mm-hmm. and we did the song with them and and it actually was well received, and and it was like a throwaway kind of, but it was the first time I got in the studio with them was right when they got signed, and I could see right away it was going to be a three ring circus. <laughs> and you've already seen some shit at this point, oh, so man, if, if, if know, it I, looked crazy, I could be to a you. ringleader. Like I could, be like, <laughs> I'll be in circle number two juggling seals, like you know. So you know, and and I'm pretty dysfunctional at this time in my life as well, so I'm not helping. You know, man, it was it was never easy making that first record. We did a couple, me meaning me and my partners, SD50s, did a couple of songs on the album. And, you know, all those guys knew how to produce a little bit, so they all wanted to be producers too. And that was difficult. And, and they didn't really know how things worked. And four guys who don't really know how it works makes for a lot of complications. Um, and very hard to manage them as a unit. But we had some success. I mean, shit, we, we did Living Color and they toured and they tore down a bunch of shows in New York and the first record case of the PTA connected. It's just another case of that old PTA. Oh, man. The school I wrote notes to quote some Shakespeare and other types of rhymes to show you that I care. For things like together forever to you're my only one. Only one. special, I can say it was a one. Single had an audience and the video was great. As a kid, I remember the PTA video, the Sob Story video. Yeah. Like those are really impactful on me. You know, I thought Sob Story was, was going to be a, a bigger hit. It kind of was kind of like R and B ish, a little mm-hmm. bit, like a little musical, and it wasn't a big hit. Case of PTA was much bigger. Mm-hmm. But just for me as a kid at the time, it did feel like these were guys you went to school with, even if they were a little older than me. Like it, the videos definitely communicated that. You know what I'm saying? So it definitely like connected with me. Yeah, that was intentional. I mean, you know, they they ran with that, and and I thought it was cool, man. I you know, look, the brand newbies thought they were dope, but but crazy. KMD mm-hmm. thought they were dope. Like we, you know, the the rap elite around me, the immediate guys around me and beyond, whether it was even Cypress Hill and them, everyone thought they had the goods. And live, mm-hmm. they were not to be fucked with. Live, they were one of the best live groups of their era. They invented the East Coast Stomp, which Tretch, Tretch and them kind of later owned. You know, it became the, the move that everyone did on stage, whether it was Crisscross or, or you know, Tribe. Um, 
Cypress, House of Pain, it just became a part of the thing. And, you know, Jump Around was a routine they did live based on a Ninja Man song. Um, and, and um, it, you know, they never made it a record. And Muggs saw that live. And he one time asked me, why didn't they make that a record? I was like, I don't know. And he augmented it. But that becomes part of the basis for Jump Around. For House of Pain. Yeah, and they were always, like, Brown was always really mad about that. The irony, mm -hmm. again, is that Jump, the routine that Leaders did was more Jamaican, and it was it was Buster-driven. Right. I never heard Buster right. mad about it. <laughs> you know, Buster, one thing about Buster is he's a wonderful politician, and he he saw positives in everyone's music he encountered, so he would like, he literally would like meet Cypress Hill and be like, I love you, I fuck with you, I wanna, I wanna rock with you. And they'd be like, oh, we're in the studio tomorrow. He'd be like, I'm gonna come. Like he, or tribe, like he really was forthcoming with his respect and admiration for other groups and it went a long mm -hmm. ways. I see. We'll get back into it in one second, but I need to take a quick moment and shout out our sponsor, DistroKid. Man, so many of my homies use DistroKid. It's a music distribution service that makes distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to put their music on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. A million plus artists, and I swear I know at least 100 of them. And now DistroKid has an app. You can use the app to upload new releases, see your DistroKid bank, and get notified when you've earned royalties. You can even check your streaming stats live. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Go to the App Store and download it. DistroKid also has a new feature called Instant Share that allows you to easily share large files securely with collaborators, producers, booking agents, managers, playlist curators, and more. Basically, anybody that needs access to your music is an easy way to upload it and send them a link. Go to distrokid.com slash instant share, drag and drop your files to upload, and then you can copy and send your link right there. It's free to send one gigabyte of files. That's like 100 MP3s. Don't quote me on that. Go to distrokid.com slash open mic. That's distrokid.com slash open mic. O-P-E-N-M-I-K-E for 30% off your membership. Uh, let's talk about, let's let's get into the, the, the technicals of the album a little bit. The first one, The Future Without a Past. And one thing I'm really curious about from your perspective, like what you thought of that noise Charlie Brown used to make. Uh, I liked it too. I liked it too. I didn't like it. Yeah. I think he could have done it way less. <laughs> he did it a lot. It was way, who's that Brown? <laughs> I mean, when I think of Brown, that's what I think of. Who's that Brown? Ah. You know, I think it sounded the Zekers yeah. and I think of him doing that and it was gimmicky and he didn't need to do that because if you listen to him rap, He's a very good rapper. He, was he actually amazing. was a, ba a baby Chuck D. Yeah, you can, like, and listening to the albums to talk about him, that was one thing that really jumped out at me was, like, he did the musicality of his flow different, but the patterns were very much like Chuck D patterns. And his voice. Yeah. Who's that now, Brown, Brown, you know, his voice was, he had a Chuck D thing to him. Um, yeah. And, like, a up, like, a updated Chuck D, a little old school with his inflections, which was cool. And, and, you know, like he was easy to record where mm. initially Buster was hard because Buster moved a lot from the mic. I so see. I would have to literally compress the shit out of him. And I also remember telling him, enunciate your words, pronounce your words. And he always gives me props. Or he's always like, yo, D, you were the one who told me to pronounce my words. Because he would get a little Jamaican, a little yard mm. man, and a little excited and you couldn't hear him sometimes. He was he was a little difficult to to record. Um, you know, he had to he had to learn how to fine tune his instrument. So I would have to compress mm -hmm. his vocals a lot. Um, but but man, he was, you know, man, that guy of all the people I ever worked with, one of the best MCs ever, uh, one of the coolest, one of the, the cats I love the most um, to this day. And 
what a performer what you know what a, what a and also what a driven individual like the guy will not take no for an answer and without getting really deep into personal things he went through a lot of shit making that record some fa- family stuff and and mm-hmm. you know i spent a lot of time with him um he'd be at my house we you know he he was he didn't his living situation was unstable and he did a lot of growing up very quickly. And, you know, he was, for me, always like my little brother. I, I had a, hmm. an unusually close relationship with Buster. Now, I don't want to say unusually close because I was really close with Sadat and, and later on Everlast and a bunch of people I worked with. But, but you know, we, we quickly became very, very close. And to this day, you know, and I, I really had a, a, I think I had an understanding of, what he was dealing with um, on a personal level beyond just the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about international zone culture. Yeah, oh, whoa. Ago. Made me change my phone number. <laughs> 39 million phone calls in the middle of the night on my home phone pre-cell pre phone days and, and me just being like, that's it, I get changed my phone number. What, what happened? Why were people calling you? Um, well, they were calling because they... I did a remix, they didn't like my remix, they want to do a remix, they did a remix, and they want to do another remix, and I want to do another remix, because I had two ideas, and it just went on and on and on and on, and they tried to, Charlie at one point was like, yo, we need the remix, and I was like, oh, I didn't do it yet, uh, just take your money back, no, he didn't want the money back, and you know, so they didn't like my remix, and they liked their remix, and they want to do the video to theirs. And I was totally cool with that. It was one of those things where Brown was like, um, it's got to be this way. And I'm like, okay, no, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like that. Um, I wanted to ask you some about Zone Coaster because you're A&R for the album with Elektra. Is it common to have an A&R that's also doing production work at that time? No, not really. I mean, it was in the 60s, right? Because like guys like Joel Dorn and Arif Martin were like A&R guys. They like, you know, were Donny Hathaway and Roberta Flax A&R people. And, and, you know, they produced all those records. So, you know, Jerry Wexler. And mm-hmm. so it was at one point. I don't think it was as in hip hop. But you know what? What did I know? I like, make, <laughs> I like making music. Puff definitely was about to do it. He did it. Right. Um, to a huge extent. And, you know, I know my way around the studio. I was never Q-tip behind the boards, but I wasn't garbage. So, I, you know, I, um, I threw my music in front of people, and my price was right. Like, I do shit mad cheap. I like paying right. my partners, right? That's I don't really up. need to get paid. I just want to do it. So, you know, that was part of it. And, and I think, um, and, and I, you'd have to ask the groups. I think that they felt like they almost had to fuck with me. To, to make things right, but that wasn't the case because mm-hmm. Brand Nubian didn't fuck with me on the second record and lots of people didn't. I did have a thing where I had a studio and before I went knee deep on working with someone, I liked to demo them. I liked to get them on a demo on the studio because I want to see how they worked in the studio. For me, that makes a lot of sense. And to this day, I'm still like that as an A&R person, which is completely obsolete. I don't like signing people to them in the studio with them. Mm-hmm. I want to see what your work ethic is. Right. You know? Your work ethic and your process. Right. Speaking of process, specifically with them, did you see them write a lot? So we redid Mount Airy Groove and uh-huh. we used the title. But, but you can find a song on YouTube. It's their first vo- piece of, it's the first music they ever did that ended up being released. Levels of imagination, levels of imagination. Yo, 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 check the high beat go drum. The D to the O is the son of a gun. They did write that in the studio. And we made another song, um, and we never finished it. And it was, I sampled the Wilbur Bascom, uh, the Bad Bascom joint, um, Keep the Groove so we mm-hmm. can dance, give the bass a taste. Um, the B-side of Blackgrass music. It's like a pretty, you know, it's like a, a Zulu breakbeat. Actually, Buster programmed the drums with me on it. He was like, yo, let me, let me get behind the drum machine and let, let me fuck with that pattern. He didn't really know how to use the sequencer, but he, 
he did bang out the pattern and we used it. Mm -hmm. It was dope. And Buster, I had a drum kit in my studio. I could play drums a little and Buster would play drums. He was nice. So I knew he had something extra too. I remember that. He got behind the kit and he, he was playing funky drum. I was like, my man can play drums for real. We were all like, yo, he's dumb talented. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that never came out, but they wrote to that in the studio too. One thing I've always been fascinated by with the group that records the way they record, like you said, they had all their, their ad-libs and stuff done, like nailed live. When they wrote, though, and they, they were, one of the, their calling cards was that they'd have everybody say some of the lines. Well, I mean, it's easy to tell where your ad-libs are going to be. So, uh -huh. and I think they wrote for that. I see. You know, but like, look, when, when you're doing a song, like, and people don't really do ad-libs anymore like that. But like that, when you're yeah. doing a song, you know where the ad-libs go. You know, like, you know, Peter Piper picked peppers, but run rock rhymes, you know. You yeah. know where it's going to go, right? You know what yeah. part's the accent. So, you know, they were just in that tradition. I don't think that they wrote specifically with that, but it's pretty easy to know where they're going to go if, if that's mm -hmm. your style of making music. I'm sure Cold Crush Brothers knew that shit but so they always got control compared to cold crush leaders they'd always reference them but there's mm -hmm. one thing they never did that cold crush always did and at the far side did but leaders didn't do was harmonize right right bone right. thugs harmony too they never mm -hmm. harmonized or they never truly sang but the far side did sing and i remember they used to piss off charlie brown <laughs> Charlie Brown sounds like the Michael Jordan of this equation. He took everything. Well, no, personal. he's not Michael Jordan because he's not the MVP three years in a row. Right. He ain't right. got three rings and he's not a six-time MVP. So, you know, there's only one Mike. That's real. And his name is Jay-Z. There it is. Um, the song, Where Do We Go From Here at the end of the album? I forget. I got, dude, I haven't heard that song in so long. I, you know... I, and I, I, I really, it's, it's not the most standout song in the world, but for some reason, I've always loved that song. I think it's like, the song has like a dreamy quality to it. Um, there's a ton of different samples in it. It's I mean, like one of those songs where like, they kind of yeah. had too many samples in a lot of stuff. You know, there was always ADD going on. I'm looking at the album, and I really haven't looked at this album in a long time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's some there's some great songs on here though. Feminine Fat is genius. Yeah, Feminine Fat is dope. Genius. You know, as the label guy and and a guy who's been involved with so many albums that have had so many samples and <laughs> you've seen up close some of the problems that can come from that. I wonder what you're thinking about these songs they have where they switch the sample every four to eight bars. You know, I wasn't and, I wasn't thinking about it when it was going down. I got to be honest, it did mm -hmm. not um, enter my realm of thinking. Right, but but um, yeah, you know, man, it it made for some problems later on, you know, and and we had to clear some things. I remember that um, Steve Winwood, the the trap, uh, the Spencer Davis shit was hard to clear. So the album comes out in July '91. Yeah, generally, how how was it received? It was received well, not not a not a big home run, but like a, a extra base hit. You know, it did well. It could have probably done better, um, but but it did do well, and um, people dug it. It got um, it got them on the road. It got them fans. You know, our merch game could have been if we knew about merch. The merch game should have murdered because that that mm -hmm. that logo's been ripped off a million times, and the name mm -hmm. Leaders of the of the New School was like been co opted like. How many leaders of the next school, leader of the cool school, right. you know, it, it never seems to go away. It's pretty eternal. So, you know, that was a miscue. We didn't really understand the merch game back then. Rap and merch was, was brand new. It was well-received, man. You know, it was, they had a nice buzz. Going that second album, um, we felt like we, we had a real shot to hit it out the park. Unfortunately, things had really leveled up internally within the group. And you know, and we had a blessing and a curse. It's called scenario. Here we go, yo. Here we go, yo. So what? So what? So what's the scenario? Here we go, yo. Here we go, yo. So what? So what? So what's the scenario? Ayo, bonus. That's exactly what I was about to bring up. So, 
Album comes out July 91. September 91, Low End Theory comes yeah. out. The Scott scenario. Yeah. How exactly does this change things for the group? Look, man, they'd been on the road. Feminine Fat was a crowd pleaser. Mm. Tip got his arm around Buster. Buster is the master politician. Mm -hmm. He's on the KMD record, The God Squad. Question number one, how can you go wrong? KMD, can I sing this song? Do the nitty gritty, do the nitty gritty. Get on down and let's do the nitty gritty. Bust the rides on my jungle, chill city. When Poovat gotcha. doesn't show up, who jumps on that record, Whoa. right? There's a reason. So, because he was the master politician. And it wasn't, it wasn't strategy, man. Buster... Maybe more strategic as time went on, but he was just like, he's just that dude. Buster will go up to someone and say, yo, I love your record. I'm going to jump on that. And dudes will be mm -hmm. like, bet. And he likes, he liked to do that. He bigs up the little dudes now, gets on the big dudes records. He's just that kind of guy. He has, he loves to rap. Like, so, you know, scenario gets created. They do the remix. Mm -hmm. Even on that, they're battling each other. Right? But Tip sets up Buster for, you know, one of the greatest verses of all time. Boom! From the cannon, not bragging. Try to read my mind, just imagine. Vote, can't build, there is necessary. When digging into my library. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Eating, I do, still like the one pizza toss. Oh, The close, the all time closer. Bring it back home, rewind. You know what I mean? Yeah. Powerful impact. Like, no, no doubt. Boom. The whole thing. Like, he comes in the club now, everyone knows that record, right? You could just, usually, if, if people play, they just drop that record. They just drop that verse. Bomb. And Q-Tip right. gives them a crazy assist. Like, so, you know. Yeah, the, the, the handoff yeah, is incredible. Amazing, right? And the video's great. Spike Lee does it. It's fucking on MTV video all day next long. Next level. Yeah. So leaders are set to, you know, they're set to go. We're on a hit record, like you know. Um, but Buster is shining, and it ratchets up everything a little more. And, and Brown hmm. has a great verse in that song, too. But he did the How Now, Brown Cowboy. You know, he did that thing, which could drive you crazy. Um, <laughs> see, here's the thing. You can only go to war if both guys are at war. But if one guy's not at mm. war and you're at war by yourself, you're probably going to lose, right? So, mm. and I don't think Buster was playing the art of war, but he played the art of war innately. So he didn't, he didn't go at Brown, but Brown tried to outrap him on that song, I don't care what you say. And Buster, being Buster, just outrapped everybody on that song, right? Yeah. And, and I think that song was somehow designed or became a platform for Buster's genius, right? Yeah, so for sure. that comes out and Buster, between that and Feminine Fat being one of the highlights of the show. And, and look, he's just, you know, like we say, the most charismatic on stage. And he, he has, it's, it starts like this with him and Brown. They're neck and neck. And then mm -hmm. Buster slowly but surely... He's he's the centerpiece, and it caused a lot of a lot of right. dissension, um, you know. And and the next record, shoulda coulda woulda, you know, it's the one that got away. You wanted Buster to, to were you wanting Buster to go solo even before did, the second album came out? I did not want him to go solo, but I always let him know that if he wanted to do a record, he could do a record. And I never ever actively tried to break up that group. I, I mm -hmm. never said that, though it's, I've been accused of it. But as things progress, he's obviously the star, and people outside of me are talking about this. And it's, it's becoming mm -hmm. apparent. Mm -hmm. Puff, Puff had said something to me about it. John Schechter at The Source. I had heard rumblings. So, you know, it, it was apparent that he was becoming bigger than the group within the group. And I always want to, as, as an A&R guy, I always want to keep the group together and have the guy go solo. Right? Right. Right. So you want to have the group active and solo records active. <laughs> exactly. Like, it's not hard to figure that shit out. Um, so, you know, 
it never worked out for me, but I've always thought that should be the case. So we start to make the second record and, and my relationship with the group is tense. After the Zone Coast debacle, I'm definitely not producing anything on the record. I'm not even trying to. The, the sample craze is even worse. And they were literally making music in the studio where they were arguing over who was rapping over what loop and the loops change under every MC and they're all fighting for mm-hmm. the loop they want the most and and it's wearing on Buster. But man, he's he's amazingly loyal. He never ever mentioned breaking out. But look, man, those guys, even I think it was during the first record, they got in a fist fight in the studio and Buster was bigger and and I got between them and uh it was fucked up and my partner Gibi had to grab Buster and pick him up and take him in the other room. And, you know, those guys were, you know, it could always be a, something could always jump off between them at this point. It was very tense. Mm-hmm. And, and look, man, Buster was trying to be the bigger person a lot of the time. And occasionally he got dragged down into it. And not to always vilify Brown. Look, Brown is just a complicated guy. And, and, and you know, I have nothing but... uh you know, like love for him at this point, but love from a distance. I haven't spoken to him in years. I learned a lot working with him, but you know, it was a lot of the dissension and problems from the group came from him and, and there's no other way to put it. And look, we step in that second record and it feels like they're at war with each other to me. Are you in a lot of the sessions for the second one? I was until I didn't want to be there. They started working in Long Island. We're working mm. at King because me being there wasn't helping. It was, it was, it might've been making things worse. So, so I kind of stopped being around as much as possible and I'd hear the records, but I wasn't necessarily there when they were making all of them because when I was there, it was, it was often uncomfortable. I felt like they needed some room. So they delivered time. Hmm. I wanted to make sure I wasn't personalizing things. So I made sure a copy went to Lior and Chris Lighty and Chris Lighty completely shared my opinion. So, and me wow. and Chris were, were very close. He has a more commercial ear than me. I'm more esoteric, but we had similar tastes, particularly back then. And we both were very aware of scenario and the possibility of Buster being solo. And we started talking about it. And he was Mm -hmm. like, this record ain't good. And I was like, what do we do? So we conspired to come up with a couple ideas. And one of my ideas was, why don't we get Q-Tip to produce the record? Have him come fix it. Wow. So I spoke to, I'm I'm not sure how deep my conversation with Tip went, whether Chris talked to him about it or I did. I don't think I did. But but he was um, apparently open to the idea. I'm not sure how structured our conversations were. My, I want to say they were, but but that might be my subjective memory. I can't necessarily remember that. But I proposed the idea to, I proposed the idea to leaders, with it being ordained by Chris, who, who obviously managed Tribe and was in the middle of all of this. And mm-hmm. three out of four of the members said no. So it became, they, nah, fuck them. They're biters. They bit the East Coast stomp from us. We was rocking. We were rocking harder than them okay, on tour. Wow. That's why they do our dance now. Nah, yo, I don't want to do that. Nah, what, we're not good enough to do our own records, but they're good enough to do their records. You know, and on and on. So really looking at it ego-wise and not looking at it business-wise or, or outside of themselves at all. My one man took me to the side at the end of that shit. Said, yo, D, let me talk to you. And, you know, Taheem, man. AKA Buster Rhymes, Todd took me to the side and was like, yo man, that's an ill idea. He said, I'm, I'm with that shit. And I guess they went back and talked about it. He got shot down. I don't know how, you know, but he got shot down. So they don't want to work with Tip. They definitely not working with me. What is the one that Michael Ray Richardson said? He said, the ship be sinking. That was like his quote when the Knicks like got blown out one time. So. So I always say that the ship be sinking. So I just felt it. You know, Lior was checked out on it. Mm. 
Chris definitely felt it. We're going backwards, not forwards, on the heels of our real opportunity. They come back with the record. I'm over budget, I think. And the record is a little better. It's not... What did they change about it, if you can remember? They changed songs. They calmed it down a little. With the um, samples changing and all that? A little bit. They um, tried to make it more cohesive. They added that song with Rumpelstiltskins. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they added a few new songs. I think they had Backspin come in a, a bit. Um, they tried to, they, they got rid of some songs, added some songs, but it was marginally better to me. So some people think that record's great and everyone's entitled to their opinion. I believe that Buster thinks it's better than I do. But to me, it sounded chaotic. Hmm. It sounded dysfunctional and chaotic and not in a good way, not in a public enemy Cypress Hill way, in a, in a very uncohesive, sloppy way. It, it wasn't, it didn't work to me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the first single is the best song on the album to me. What's next? Yeah. Yeah. And it goes like this. Skip to my news. Yes. And look, man, I was trying to camouflage the album, right? I was like, yo, I got one. Sounds like the first record. And and it does. I got Large Professor to remix it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and... It just wasn't, it didn't really connect. I can't tell you if it didn't connect because the vibe was universally off. Whether Electra didn't go the distance for it. I will say this, when it came time to market the album, me and my promo guy, Mike Jones, Ali Shahid's cousin, both knew the album wasn't going to rock. And Chris Lighty knew it as well. I don't want to say we chumped the budget because we didn't. That's not within our realm of doing. But we definitely knew that there was going to be a point in time we had to cut our losses on this. Wow. Um, And to walk into a record like that is a bad feeling. And the reviews were not great. The word on the street wasn't great. The video is fantastic. My man Michael Lucero did 93 to Infinity, one of my favorite directors ever passed away he did he died in a car crash shortly thereafter he made that video the video Mm. was fantastic um almost saved it and uh that was that man it wasn't it didn't connect it was not my fault though i was made a scapegoat Mm. but you know charlie again the ringleader buster started really thinking about the solo thing that me and chris had put in his ear and I remember my friend Matt Robinson called me up, and, and his mom is a famous talent manager, Dolores Robinson, who worked with John Singleton at the time. And um, he was like, yo, Dolores wants to talk to you. And Dolores was like, um, that's like my auntie. She's like, she's like family. And she was like, hey, Dante, um, you know, we're doing this movie, and I, I want to do cast a bunch of people, and I know you know all the young rappers. Is there anyone out there you think who could act and maybe do this? And I said, yeah, my man Buster could kill it. What the fuck you talking about, white boy? What the fuck you calling gang members? You know we go to school here too? So, oh, okay. So I threw that at Chris, and he, he, he went and did the audition. He got the movie. Um, he was filming the movie. The band started hearing about the solo offer in the air. They stormed my office, very mad. Uh, it came close to fisticuffs with me and Brown. Uh, Milo, to his credit, calmed us the fuck down. It was not cool at all. They called They called Buster on the set of the movie, wherever he was. We got in touch with them. And they, Brown and them were screaming on him. And I'm like, this shit's going to end. Like, I've seen it. Mm-hmm. And and I had I had his back. I was like, yo, what the fuck are you guys doing? My man's shooting a movie. Like, fucking get your mind right. And then and I can't remember in context if they do MTV before or after that. Yeah, okay. But but I want to say after that. I'm I'm now I'm I'm 99% sure it's after that. But I could be wrong. Once again, my my memory is okay. You know, I used to fucking smoke a lot of weed. Um, <laughs> so so. Um, 
and take a lot of psychedelics. So, so um, the MTV fiasco happens, and they ask. And and just just for people who aren't aware, I just want to tell them what this is because this is an infamous uh, interview they have where they are like breaking up pretty much live on air. Yeah, there's something that just didn't seem right. Hey Charlie Brown, you know what's been going on, my brother? lounging, you know what I'm saying? Like you said, just getting to know myself, you know what I'm saying, and know what my capabilities are and what I'm going to do in life. And we noticed that the group was having a little powwow over on the side, and we could see that the conversation between Buster and the other members of the group was starting to get kind of heated. Please don't film this beat. They put the cameras on them, and what, what's in store for you in, you know, forthcoming year, and Buster Rhymes mentions, I believe, the movie. I just did a move, my first movie, and we're working on music. Leaders of New School, ba 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 ba, da da da. And Brown's like, 93, 94 is all about C. Brown going for Delph, like ba ba ba. Like, you know, basically, like, you know, basically, like setting up his solo career live on Yo MTV Raps. And yo, Buster's face, yo, Buster wanted to kill him right there. Hmm. Everyone is the publicist. Everyone's looking at everyone. And, and I was alone with Bus, and he was so mad he had tears coming out of his eyes. Not, not out of hurt, out of anger. Like Bus was so mad. And I'm going to say that is the day that Buster, in his mind, wanted to go solo. And shortly thereafter, after much, much coaxing, he decided to go solo because the band had broken up around him. And his allegiance to that band was above and beyond. There's no, nothing you could ever tell me um, that is a sign of someone's character than his behavior with that group. He didn't want to leave the group. Part of it was he was scared to leave the group. Mm -hmm. But part of it was he's a very loyal person. And he wasn't going to just go and flat leave his boys. That wasn't his goal. He didn't want to do that. And so, you know, it happened. He um, he made the decision, and we exercised the solo option on him. It became apparent that it was something to do. Shortly thereafter, my, my long-term boss got relieved, and Sylvia Rohn was a big proponent of Buster Rhymes. It helped him immensely. And, and actually, Buster was much better at handling his working relationship with her than I was. Um, mm. And... and um, you know, slowly but surely, we, you know, we put the deal together and started to make the the solo record. That was that. The leaders was over. Did any of the other members try to stay on with Electra like the way that Brand Nubian did? Charlie Brown um did, and I, I didn't have any interest in it. And it wasn't because he wasn't talented. It was because I couldn't coexist with him. Mm -hmm. It wasn't worth it. It was just going to become ugly. It would it would be just so miserable. You know, it's like you can't create with people who you can't stand and expect it to be good. It's not going to be a good experience. Even if we sold a million records, it would be a bad experience. You know, like some of that clouds my experience with third base. Like, you know, it was a lot of fun, but I should be able to celebrate that as more fun. But because of one of the cat's behaviors in the group and things that transpired afterwards, it's hard, hard for me to, to look back and completely celebrate that. So I knew mm -hmm. Charlie Brown would just be a worse version of that. So I had to cut my loss. And so Buster starts developing the solo stuff like the Flavor in Your Ear remix. Yep. Comes out this, that really kind of puts a spotlight on oh him my God. in a new kind of way. Oh my God, the Tribe yeah. joint? They sample him. Yeah. You know, they have him doing mm -hmm. the hook. And, you know, he's Buster Rhymes. He's in demand. He's in demand. It's that simple, right? And he starts to make the record. I didn't stay at a lecture for the entire record. I did the deal. I worked on some of it, and then I, I left to go work at Def Jam. So that mm -hmm. was, you know, and, and that's, you know, that was a huge mistake on my behalf. I should have stayed there and reaped the benefits of, of my underachieving promo staff and rode the Sylvia Rohn wave, but I didn't. And if I hadn't done that, I would have never gone and made, made Everlast record or won a Grammy for Santana. So, you know, everything happens for a reason. You know, and, and look, I was at some of the sessions for that record, even after I worked at a, uh, after I left Def Jam and I mean, left Electra and, um, 
my bond with Buster remains. That's my guy. And he will always be my guy. What did you think or feel when you heard them bring it together for the song Keep It Moving on Buster's solo album? Thought it was admirable. Thought Buster was doing the right thing. He trying to give dudes a shot and showing the world that it's not all over. Buster really didn't, you know, he, I think Buster also knew like his animosity with Brown, you know, had an effect on everyone in the group. And Milo's his cousin, Dinko's his man. And I think, you know, like me and Brown, it was love-hate with him and Brown, you know, just like me. Like, I don't hate Brown. Um, it was just love-hate. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't coexist with the dude, you know. Um, and I think Buster probably knew that. And, you know, he, he, uh, he was paying respect to the guys who slugged it out with him for a few. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a story that's like really inspiring if you look at Buston, where he came from and where he ended up. Man, you know? let me tell you something. That guy is so driven. He got the battery in his back from day one. He always wanted it. You know, he's, he's really talented, but he's really driven. And a lot of people, a lot of people, nobody I've ever encountered is as driven as him. And I think uh, next time we speak, we'll end up covering an artist who you can draw a similar path with, that being uh, MF Doom and, and KMD, you know. I have to get my strength up for that one. It's, you know, for me to you, it's, it's mm. not easy for me to talk about Doom. Doom.